Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Andy Lytle. We're at, uh, at the Joy in Salem, Oregon. That's July 16th, 2020. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. You bet. First question and most important question for our purposes today is why wine? Uh, interesting. Uh, so it started probably at a young age. Our family was uh, into the beer and wine distribution um, side of the business. Um, family was originally timber and then in 1977, uh, we moved to Southern Oregon and uh, my father started a small beer and wine distribution company called Gold River Distributing and then um, growing up, you know, sitting at the dinner table, there was always the opportunity when we were hiring people. Um, at that time it was either IBM or Xerox or Gallo. Uh, and so I went to college at University of Arizona and uh, came back from University of Arizona um, and graduated there with an economics degree with a minor in Japanese but was going to want to be an attorney, ended up realizing that it would take me too far away from my family business, so I went to work for E&J Gallo. So that's how I first got in the wine business as a sales rep and as a district manager and a regional manager there. Uh, and then I left E&J Gallo Winery and went to work for Coors Brewing Company. So I kind of stayed in the alcohol beverage side of the business and uh, moved to Denver, Colorado, and I ran national account sales for uh, the convenience store side of the business. Did that for about three and a half years. And at that time, uh, our distribution company had expanded. We bought three companies, put them together, created a company called Mount Hood Beverage. And when we did that, um, we were combining, we were primarily a beer house, but we were adding wine into it. And I understood wine from my experience at Gallo, and then I understood beer from my experience at Coors. And so my dad suggested that maybe it's time to come back to the family business because we're kind of integrating those two things. So did that in 1997, 1998, right in there. And uh, we ran that business until 2000, actually ran that business until 2008 when we merged with a company called Columbia Distributing. And uh, we kept that business until 2012 and we ended up selling it when uh, Washington opened up to be an open state and we had an opportunity uh, to get out of the business and we took that opportunity. And so beer and wine distribution was kind of in my entire upbringing. Um, along that way, um, after we did our um, uh, deal in 2008, uh, I went to work for Young's Market Company for two years. And then after that, went to work for Ian, or I'm sorry, uh, Jackson Family Wines. And um, I was a division vice president there, ran the western half of the United States for the Jackson family. Did that until um, February of 2019. Along the way, there was, uh, I knew that I had been involved with you know, beer and wine distribution. I had sold wine. I'd, I really had a lot of passion for it, learned a lot along the way. Uh, very interested in the agricultural, the viticulture side of the business. And so in um, 2013, uh, the Jackson family bought uh, some property here in Oregon. In fact, just across the way, it's called Zena Crown. And I was uh, in a tour there with a distributor group out of Florida. And the uh, vineyard manager 
asked me, he goes, when are you going to buy a piece of property here in Oregon? And I said, well, I really like Oregon, but I'm actually thinking about a piece in Walla Walla right now. And he goes, oh, you should buy in Oregon. So came around a corner, looked up here and saw this piece of property. And I said, that's a beautiful piece of property. And he said, it's for sale. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so soil tests and all of those things. And the next thing you know, I'm a, I bought this piece of property. It was just hay. It had been hay and it had this house on it. But the reality was um, it just needed a massive remodel. Um, but th the land was all hay, but it was perfect for vines. So we did all the work um, and we uh, developed the property and we planted it to vines in 2015. So all of these things are kind of incubating along the way. Um, so when um, I was working for Jackson Family Wines, all of these things, you, know, you plant the vineyard, you do all these things, it takes time you know, for the development of all the property. So I knew eventually I was gonna come back to actually own my own vineyard and kind of start my own labels and do that kind of thing. So that was just in process. Mm -hmm. So that's how that whole process began. I think um, there's a really neat story along the way. Um, Barbara Banke, who owns Jackson Family, uh, is into thoroughbred horse racing. Oddly, my family had been in thoroughbred horse racing, uh, and um, she had a friend named Anthony Beck, and Anthony Beck, uh, his family started Graham Beck out of South Africa, but was also big into thoroughbred horse racing, has a farm in Lexington called Gainesway. Oops. So, uh, had a, a farm in Lexington called Gainesway, and so he had a small wine label that he had out here called Angela, which is named after his wife. And he asked Barbara if the Jackson family could represent Angela uh, across the country. And so we did that. And so in 2011, we, uh, I got introduced to Anthony at the Allison Inn. And um, we had started having conversations about thoroughbred horse racing. And uh, I mentioned to him that our family was in it. And he goes, oh, uh, tell me about it. And I said, well, in 83, we had a horse in the Derby. And he goes, he goes, what was it? I said, Desert Wine. And he said, oh, Chris McCarran wrote it. It said, T90 on the back on the silks. And I was like, how did you know that? And he goes, that's what I do. And so from that point on, we just established a relationship. And so he and I worked together on what he wanted to have happen with Angela. But along the way, I kept suggesting to him that, you know, I know you make sparkling wine in South Africa. Why don't you make sparkling wine here in Oregon? Because now's the time to really um, have that opportunity because Pinot Noir has always been here. Chardonnay had really been up and coming since probably about 2008. And it was ready to be the two varietals that were really gonna make up sparkling wine here and do it at a very high level. And so I kept harassing him and asking him to do it and one day he called me and he goes, you really want me to make sparkling wine in Oregon? And I said, I think you're crazy if you don't. And he goes, good, I'm going to do it. He goes, but you're going to partner with me 50-50. And that's how Lytle Barnett got started. So that was in 2013. Um, the name Barnett on the back of the label is actually his mother's maiden name. So we didn't get Beck confused with the Graham Beck. So uh, Barnett is his mother's maiden name. And um, so we had to go find a winemaker. So in 2013, we went out and um, came as a recommendation to talk to Andrew Davis. At that time, he was, had just previously left Argyle. He was starting his own company called the Radiant Sparkling Company, which really does bottling, disgorge, and dosage, uh, primarily for uh, people who really don't have sparkling production facilities. Mm -hmm. And so that's how he was just starting. So I got very lucky on the timing because we're the only client he makes wine for, and I think I caught him just at that right time. So 
he is really kind of known in Oregon, really as the sparkling person. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a pleasure to work with him. Uh, we're coming into our eighth vintage together this year, which is amazing to think about. Also exciting about that is that via the Graham Beck side of the business, Peter Fiera, who nicknamed Bubbles around the world, uh, world you know, world acclaimed uh, Bubbles maker, is our consulting maker. So it was really exciting for me to know that we got the best sparkling maker in Oregon. We have one of the best sparkling makers in the world in Peter. So as much as I love our product, when they said the product was good, you know, they kind of had the credibility, you know, much more so. I loved it, but, you know, they added kind of the credibility to it. So that's kind of how the whole Lytle Barnett process got started. Um, and it's been an absolute blast ever since. We primarily farm Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Um, uh, we have a new property. Um, uh, this property is called Anahata, uh, which is the heart chakra. And all of the vineyard blocks are translations of the word joy. Um, so uh, th this pro property is um, two blocks of Chardonnay and seven blocks of Pinot Noir. And we have a new property that we just bought uh, called Windfall, is what we named it, just right over here in the Eola Amity Hills. And uh, we're primarily going to do Chardonnay and Pinot Noir there, but we're also going to do some Pinot Meunier. We're going to do some Gamay. We're going to do a couple other things over there. And we're really excited. We're going to do a couple field blends over there, kind of going back to traditional Burgundy, where uh, the row might be Chardonnay. But here, we're so clonal specific. Mm -hmm. Over there, it was a mix of the clones. So we're going to do a couple blocks over there, a field blend, where it's a blend of different clones of Chardonnay and blends of different clones of Pinot Noir. We're very excited about that. And the opportunity really kind of came um, for us to decide, you know, what do we want to do on the long-term picture? So there are designs on this property to, to build a tasting room and a winery on this property, as well as we're going to do that over at Windfall um, and really have a showcase winery facility primarily for sparkling, and then also a tasting room there and hopefully an amphitheater and an opportunity to really uh, bring some attention to the uh, Eola Amity Hills kind of the long-winded way. So you're not, not bored is what you're saying. You're not a lot of well, time. Well, what's funny about that too is uh, I always wanted to make still wine as well, but sparkling is kind of my, is my passion. Um, ironically, Andrew Davis's wife is Isabel Manier, and Isabel Manier is one of the rock star winemakers here in the Valley, and uh, she used to make great wine at Evening Land. Uh, she has her own label now called Lavinia. But she had seen Andrew and I's interaction for the previous, you know, six, seven years. And she had some time open up and some space open up at Carlton Winemaker Studio. And so she asked me, do you want to do a, a, a still wine project together? And I said, absolutely. Um, and uh, so that opportunity came about. Okay, Dees. I'll pick back up with Isabel. Sure. Yeah, so Isabel uh, had some uh, time and some space available at Carlton Winemaker Studio. And uh, she said, do you want to do a project together? And I was over the moon, uh, probably a little earlier than I was planning on doing a still wine project, but I was not going to say no to Isabel Manier. So um, we started a project, the first vintage was 2019, just last year. Uh, very excited about it. We're doing a uh, single vineyard Chardonnay from here, the Anahata Vineyard, and a single vineyard Pinot Noir here from the Anahata Vineyard. Um, the label is going to be called Oban, and Oban is uh, translation, the word is windfall in French. And so primarily the new property, uh, that will be the property that comes off of there. 
Amazing. I want to back up for a second here. Mm -hmm. uh, took us through the journey, which is awesome. So I want to back up and talk about Gallo. Mm -hmm. um, as a first wine job, it's pretty interesting going to like the, the biggest of the bigs. So tell me about uh, learning on the job there, what you what you learned about wine distribution, what you learned about wine in general yeah. while you're at Gallo. Uh, so, you know, Gallo does a great job with their sales training. Uh, so that's primarily what that was, is learning how to go uh, work in a grocery store and execute. And But at the same time, you had to have, you know, basic wine knowledge. And so they did a great job teaching us, you know, kind of wine 101, a little bit about wine so that we could talk about wine or help a customer that was, you know, shopping or doing some of those things. And so there was always um, an education component to it um, and I think that that's what kind of triggered me uh, you know our family you know for three generations we farm timber so oddly you know today we farm vines so it might have been inevitable that we were going to get back to farming um, I have this joke where I call myself a hashtag farmer um, but I really enjoy it and um, you know, I spend time with my family here and it's just very relaxing um, I would say also when I went to work for Jackson family um, they are, uh, you know, I had an opportunity as a distributor to represent uh, Jackson family, so I had the opportunity to meet Jess and Barbara and the kids as they kind of grew up, and they were all about quality, right? Quality in everything that they did, and they still do, and um, I'm a big believer in their products, and it, uh, that was kind of educated and taught to me to really understand what kind of product you're selling, so they do an excellent job on education, uh, in particular learning about the vineyards and what happens with the terroir and what happens with you know different kinds of varietals and climates and things that they do and they had uh, represented wines from around the world had the opportunity to go to many of those and so that education kind of uh, really sparked my interest in you know I had been selling wine for 25 you know 26 years and the reality was uh, farming and coming back to actually growing grapes really grabbed my attention and it's really where my passion uh, fell probably in the last 10 years mm -hmm. and very excited to, to be doing that. Tell me about that farming and growing, tell me about learning the process uh, of wine grapes specifically and, and learning your terroir and learning how to get the best quality out of your grapes. Yeah, I think that that's really important. Um, and I think it's, uh, I have a philosophy that I always want to be learning. And I think the cool part about farming and, and viticulture and enology is that you're always learning. Uh, it seems like once I think I know what I'm doing, I realize I don't. Uh, so that's really a cool opportunity to continue ongoing learning. But, you know, whether it be, you know, uh, the aspect, uh, vineyard aspect or row aspect, you know, um, we farm sparkling wine here as well as uh, still wine. So um, the idea of how canopy management, you know, vineyard management. Uh, we've hired results partners to manage our property here and they're very educational. Um, and, you know, understanding, you know, what kind of canopy management do we need? When we harvest, what kind of bricks do we need to be for sparkling wine? What are we aiming for? And what's interesting is the um, the opportunity really to understand how different still wine and sparkling wine is, is great. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing I've had this cool opportunity this year is my daughter is my intern for the summer. She's going to be a senior at Oregon State University next year, a minor in viticulture and enology. So I've been learning along with her. And what's exciting about that is we sell grapes here at Anahata, but we also are a client because we buy our own grapes. So learning uh, from the vineyard management side what the client wants, as well as being the client and requesting from the vineyard manager 
what we want to have in the property is really a big learning curve as it relates to all of those different aspects of wine. And it's really helped too because we did plant this vineyard in 2015 and we'll plant uh, windfall here in the fall of 2020 and in the spring of 21. And that education about already planting a vineyard is really helping with the new one. Mm -hmm. But some of the vineyard development opportunities over there are great. The learnings of aspects and hillsides and benches and you know where we want to have you know the best quality mm -hmm. uh, you know sun exposure you know we want to be south and we primarily southern or you know east and west facing mm -hmm. um, so all of those have really kind of come into play to try to pick the best possible locations I think one thing that's really interesting too here about the Eola Amity Hills is that I think 15 years ago uh, the Castiles could probably tell you this that this was a cold growing region and it, it was a little harder to get things to ripen you know we have this amazing uh, opportunity where the coastal range has the um, has the Van Duzer Corridor and the Van Duzer Corridor allows the cold air and the wind to come in from the ocean mm -hmm. so we can have extremely hot days and get extremely cool nights because of that opportunity so um, as a result of that, uh, it used to be a cold growing region, but as climate change has occurred and it's starting to warm up, all of a sudden now to the west side of the Olamity Hills where windfall is, probably 15 years ago would have been too cool of a spot to grow. Now it's perfect because of we're warmed up a little bit, we get the Eol Amity breeze from the Van Duzer, um, and it's just a great opportunity to the point where to the west even further now, we have a new sub-AVA over there, which is called the Van Duzer AVA. Mm. Nobody would have dreamt on the other side of the 99 being able to make wine over there, and now it's a sub-AVA. Mm -hmm. So Eola Amity Hills to me is kind of near and dear just because we've got this really, I think, perfect climate to have the hot days and the cool nights, and that's strictly because of the Van Duzer. Mm. So it's a great opportunity for wine growers here in this uh, AVA. Well, this this property in particular, uh, you, you you stumbled into it kind of without really anticipating it. Uh, tell me about learning it and, and deciding what you wanted to plant, how you wanted to plant it, how you wanted it to be farmed, <clears throat> etc. Yeah, so um, uh, I was really um, excited about the sustainability opportunities within wine business. Um, California has some different certifications and we were fairly familiar with those via the Jackson family. Uh, but when we came up here, the really, uh, the, the sustainable certification is called LIVE, Low Impact Viticulture and Enology. And we were uh, coming right out of the gates, I wanted this to be a LIVE project. And so we've farmed it to be that way since its inception. Uh, I give a lot of credit again to Results Partners and the management team there to really kind of steering us that direction. I think it's been an important aspect of what we do here. Um, we've recently put bees on the property, which I'm really excited about. So we have honeybees on the property now. So um, having a perfect ecosystem and one that is, you know, really nature-based is really important to me. Uh, so, you know, we've never used pesticides, obviously. You know, herbicides are kind of going by the wayside now that the, the, the property is a little bit more mature. Uh, we're able to do cultivation where we can do that kind of weeding without using any kind of pesticides or herbicides, which is great. Um, so I think it's really kind of coming into itself in a mature level, now coming into its sixth vintage here um, at uh, Anahata. 
But I would tell you a, a really interesting story uh, that um, when I first found the property, um, Barbara from Jackson family had just bought Xena and also um, Grand Moraine up in Yamhill Carlton. And they actually looked at this property and it was owned by a trust out of California, um, but they wouldn't sell the land or the house. They would sell it all together. And at the time, uh, Barbara had just bought a bunch of land, so she didn't really feel like she needed a lot of land. But the house she wanted for hospitality because it really had a great view of her new Xena property. And so um, at the time, I was interested in it. Barbara had looked at it. And um, when it came, I, I made a final offer on the property. And when I made that final offer, um, I got a phone call from the president of Jackson family. Um, and he said, hey, are you thinking about buying that piece of property across from Xena? And I said, I have an offer in there right now. And he goes, that's your offer? And I said, yes. And he goes, are you still going to use it for hospitality and stuff like that? And I said, that's the plan. And he goes, okay, I'm not going to counter you. And so I thought it was just timing and serendipitous that, you know, if I wouldn't have known him, and he didn't have my phone number and wouldn't have called me at 10 o'clock at night, he could have easily outbid me for this property. So very serendipitous to me that, that this, this came to fruition. Mm -hmm. And then fast forward, uh, the property over um, wind, Windfall, um, you know, there was a lot of people interested in that property. Uh, heard about it on a Thursday, visited it on a Saturday, made a full price offer on a Monday. There were other offers there. The only reason that uh, folks sold me the properties because I already own property in the valley. Mm. So going all the way back to 2013 when this serendipitous opportunity happened is really what ignited the opportunity for me here in the old Amity Hills and it was just really serendipitous. Mm. And so thus the name Windfall uh, is the synonym for serendipity mm -hmm. and also that you're staring directly at the Van Duzer so it's a little bit of a double entendre. <laughs> Uh, we'll talk about uh, Lotto Barnett for a second. You mentioned kind of the origin story of that and, and what you're going for there. Tell me about what intrigued you about Oregon sparkling wine. You mentioned it being kind of the third, you know, or, uh, Pinot Noir established, Chardonnay being established, now time for sparkling. Uh, what did you kind of, when the project started, what did you kind of anticipate as what you could do with it? And, and ha have you gotten to that goal? Has, has Lotto Barnett been what you wanted it to be? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, I've always been a sparkling wine fanatic. Um, and always thought that there would be an opportunity here. And it really wasn't until Chardonnay really became a viable, great product here. You know, Oregon is pretty much known for Pinot Noir specifically and Pinot Gris. And again, like I said, in 2008, Chardonnay became an opportunity. And when that happened, and because of the high, you know, Oregon has got a lot of acclaim, you know, as a growing region, the Willamette Valley in particular, and the sub-AVAs within it. Um, and my attitude was sparkling wine is more expensive to make, so a lot of people don't do it. And really, um, and no discredit to anybody previously who had made wine here, but, you know, we'd sell sparkling wine for $25 a bottle. Well, who wants to go out and spend more money and then only get charged 25 bucks when you can sell Chardonnay for 45 or 50 and you can sell Pinot Noir for 50 to 65 mm -hmm. and it costs more to make sparkling wine, why would you do it? And our attitude and Anthony and I's attitude was let's make exceptionally good sparkling wine in the vintage uh, method Champenois traditions of France and do it right here in Oregon and do it at a super high level, vineyard specific uh, vintage product. Mm 
And so there were a couple people in the valley. Uh, Soder was making an incredible sparkling wine, um, but it was, wasn't their primary passion. Still wine was their passion. Uh, they'd make their Brut Rosé and uh, it was wonderful, but they'd sell it out and then it was gone. And you know, Argyle had some extended tirage products and some of those, but there really weren't any kind of high-end vintage sparkling wines coming out of Oregon. And I really felt that the quality of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay here really created the opportunity for that to happen. And so that's what we really tried to capitalize on is really the beauty of uh, the Willamette Valley, the opportunity of super high quality Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, putting that into a bottle with you know the winemaker experience that Andrew Davis had really created that opportunity for us. And yes, are we expensive? And we kind of price ourselves at non-vintage French uh, pricing, but I think from a qualitative standpoint, we think the quality is there. Uh, we've been lucky enough to have some ratings from wine enthusiasts that run us from 93 points to 91 points on our four different SKUs that we have. And um, yeah, we're really excited about it. And we're, you know, our expansion into the national play is happening as we speak. Uh, COVID, of course, has you know, slowed that a little bit, but um, you know, we're, we make a vintage product, so we're not overly concerned about the delay. And uh, we're really excited about the future and the opportunity. And I think a lot of people in the Valley are making sparkling wine now. Uh, quite a few, actually. In fact, Andrew's business, Radiant Sparkling Company, is very busy, right? Because, you know, disgorging, dosage, and bottling, you know, sparkling wine for, uh, I think he's got 150 or 200 clients now. So it's becoming a bigger thing. It's just a small side project for most people. For us at Lytle Barnett, it's what we do. So it's our focus, our strategy on how we go into the marketplace. Tell me about your your first impressions of, of Oregon when you when you you came up here. You had a lot of experience in California, obviously with the, the biggest players in California. Yep. Tell me about your first kind of initial impressions of Oregon, the industry, the the, the people in it, the, the the products coming out of it, yep. and what you thought you could sort of add to it at that point. Yeah. Um, so you know, I'm originally an Oregonian. Um, I was born in Washington, but I was raised in Grants Pass, Oregon. So I've always been familiar, and now Southern Oregon has got a wonderful winemaking uh, piece going on. That when I lived there, when I went to high school down there, it really wasn't a big wine industry, but it is now, and I'm really excited for what's happening down there. Um, being a wholesaler uh, here and really based out of Portland, Oregon, we were really familiar with the Oregon wine industry because of what we were doing from a distribution side of the business, um, getting to know a lot of the people that were there. I think the one thing that impressed me the most about Oregon and the folks that were making wine here is that it was a farming community. Um, they were following their passions and they were supporting each other. And even to this day, I would tell you that it's not a competition at all. It's literally a rising tides raises all boats scenario here um, to where, you know, if somebody needs help or they need storage, they need to store some product somewhere or they need to put their dry goods somewhere, the doors are wide open. Uh, the tractor broke down, I need some help. Uh, instantaneously your neighbor would give it to you. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of community that in the Oregon wine industry has really kind of allowed us to propel ourselves together uh, as an industry moving forward and literally trying to raise the bar for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think that's happening. And I think that's a, something that in Oregon wine culture that isn't uh, everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, California's competitive, right? It's dramatically different. And this is a farming community up here uh, first. And secondarily, we're making exceptional Pinot Noir Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, Gamay you know, right now, which is really exciting. Mm. I think the accolades that Oregon's getting right now from whether it be wine spectator or wine enthusiast or any of the folks out there, I think is um, 
is is well deserved, mm -hmm. and it's just I think it's, it says a lot about the character of the Oregon wine industry. We talked a little bit about this property now, and you're you're a few vintages in now. So as you've developed it, as you've started to to kind of familiarize yourself with it, what's exciting, special, unique about this spot, and what are you excited about with with the new windfall spot? You know, again, always learning, but I just think that, uh, you know, the aspect here that we have is, you know, we're primarily southern facing. Um, we sit, this, where we're sitting right now is about 520 feet, you know, so from an elevation standpoint. Um, I think it's exciting because, you know, sun rises directly, you know, to our east and goes directly to the west. So the aspect and sun um, that we get, but the learnings are great. You know, we're surrounded by these beautiful oak grove trees that you know that creates some shading against some of the uh, ends of the panels and so learning how to farm those a little bit differently learning how to you know canopy management comes into play significantly in those areas um, and I think it's really taken you know this good five six years now to really understand the vineyard mm -hmm. is now we would probably consider this vineyard getting to the point of maturity mm -hmm. so it's kind of thriving on its own it's very exciting to see uh, each you know each time we we have bud break and uh, we start getting into uh, set or flower. It's really just an awesome opportunity to watch it grow on its own. Um, and again, going back to the farming aspect, you know, we don't really try to manipulate too much. It's either got to be a, a, a wonderful site as it relates to the, to the terroir, to the soil. It's got to have great, you know, aspects to the sun. Um, it's got to have, you know, if you can get hot days and cool nights like we have, it creates the opportunity to really make a really high quality product. And again, as I've kind of fallen in love with the Ola Amity Hills, the opportunity for windfall, again, is exactly that, right? It's a, it's a, I call them a forever view. You know, I hope my kids and their kids will, you know, forever enjoy those views as well. But the aspect that they will have uh, from those vines and the sun exposure that they have with that Van Duzer breeze hitting them uh, after a hot day in the, in the middle of summer is exactly what those vines need. You talked about with uh, Lotto Barnett uh, kind of establishing yourself as, as, as a passion project where sparkling is all you do for that project. Mm -hmm. And so what is the, what is the, what is the takeaway for a consumer? What, what would you want the reaction to be to, to trying some of your wine? What would the ultimate kind of takeaway slash reaction be from a, from a consumer? Well, you know, I think sparkling wine is an uh, aspirational, inspirational type of a feel. And I think uh, it's not necessarily used for just celebratory opportunities, even though it is. Uh, you know, but we think sparkling wine can be drank on a daily basis, you know, and it's wonderful with food. So there's a lot of education, you know, that goes into sparkling wine as it relates to how does it pair with food? When's the opportune time to drink it? What's the proper temperature? All of those kinds of mystique things that are around sparkling wine are all actually very important, but there's an education piece that suggests that what are you looking for in a, you know, in a sparkling wine? As it relates to, I think first and foremost, one of the things that we do at Lytle Barnett is we have very low sugar. Mm -hmm. So our uh, grams, you know, we probably don't make anything over three grams uh, of sugar, which is very low. Um, and we think that gives uh, the, the fruit here, gives us a very um, 
kind of a fresh taste. It's not acidic. Uh, it's just very fresh and it's lengthy on the palate. So I think that is something that I think is rare in sparkling wine. So usually if you're going that low on sugar, you're probably going to get something acidic, probably something a little bit tart. Um, and we don't get that here. And I think that's just some of the, uh, what we get out of the, the Willamette Valley and the Willamette Hills in particular is this really great opportunity to have something fresh and vibrant uh, and yet not acidic. So you can have you know, more than one glass and really celebrate you know, what's going on inside that. Uh, next, next question for you is about this spot and you have, obviously have, you mentioned some of the aspirations you have for this. So um, as you look ahead to what this property will look like and, and your new property will look like, what, uh, what's the end? You, you mentioned a winery, state-of-the-art winery, lodging, a destination. Is it, is it what's, what's the ultimate goal for, for this, these spaces? You know, again, always evolving, I think. But I think, um, you know, this is a farming community. And there, you know, up until in 2013 when we bought this, there really weren't any bed and breakfast. There weren't a lot of bed and breakfasts. There aren't really any, a lot of hotels around the area. And yet at the same time, we really want people to come and visit us, right? And see what we're doing here and really get excited about uh, the Oregon wine industry. And so when we bought this house, um, it was uh, uh, the idea was to create and use it for hospitality. So it's a 5,400 square foot home and it only had three bedrooms in it. So I got done with the remodel and said, well, there's not enough bedrooms really to be a hospitality home. So we built a bunch of bungalows over beside the pool and we added a bedroom downstairs. And so we created a 6,500 square foot, seven bedroom facility where people could come here. So whether that be families, whether that be YPO groups, whether that be people coming just to understand and learn about the Oregon wine industry. I mean, there are some unbelievable wineries just within, you know, less than a half a mile away. You've got Bethel Heights, and you've got Walter Scott, Christum, Witness Tree, Bryn Mawr, um, just wonderful wines just a stone's throw away. So this really can be a, a focal point for Eola Amity. And then, you know, for us to get to McMinnville or Dundee, it's 20 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. So it really becomes a great destination. Mm -hmm. um, so what does the future hold? I think there's some other folks, you know, that in like Black Walnut Inn and some other folks that are doing some really cool things that are bringing people in. And I think it's really important that the tourism and the, the Oregon wine industry will thrive on our tasting rooms and the people coming in and doing that kind of thing. So um, the future, I think, is that it's going to get a little bit more touristy, and that's okay as long as we stay to our Oregon roots. Um, but uh, yeah, the future of the Oregon wine business, I think, is very strong. I think we're very much at an early stage of really understanding the quality aspects that we really have here. Um, you know, nobody likes to compare themselves to anything, but from a Burgundian perspective, uh, the, the style of wines that we make here from a Chardonnay aspect is much more Burgundian than it is California. There's very little oak here, there's, there's no butter here, and we're looking for more minerality uh, and, and, and stone fruit type of an approach on our Chardonnay, so something a little bit uh, kind of cleaner and minerality. Uh, Pinot Noir, you know, we used to have this joke in Oregon where it was, Oregon was all barnyard, right? So it all smelled like manure. And yes, yeah, so there are some aspects in some places and some terroirs that, does, that do deliver that. But I think, you know, there are different, you know, especially if you look at something like what you might get in Eola versus something you might get up in, you know, Dundee or Ribbon Ridge, a different kind of Pinot Noir. I think that 
opportunity you know, of red, flute, red fruit or blue fruit really creates that opportunity to have stylistically different, you know, so if you want to come stay here at At The Joy, which is this property, and you can understand the Eola Amity, and then go drive up to the Shehala Mountains and taste the wines there, they're different. Mm -hmm. So it's not, do I like this one better than that one? They're just different. Mm -hmm. So I think the opportunity for this wine industry to really understand that they're not all the same, and the opportunity to really grow something specific here is, is uh, apparent, you know, and, and very, very, um, I think it keeps this industry alive and well. Now the one thing that I would say is that uh, as it relates to the Oregon wine industry, you know, it used to be the old adage is you kind of would grow wine in between, you know, kind of 200 feet up to about 800 feet. And we do that because of drainage where, you know, a, a rainier climate, so we really can't grow on the valley floor like you can in Napa or Sonoma. Um, so the opportunity here is anywhere where you see a bump in the Willamette Valley that gets you above 200 feet probably is going, and have the correct aspect, um, probably is gonna be a great spot to grow wine. Well, there aren't a lot of those left. And so I think what's gonna be interesting is um, we have a couple things here. You know, we used to have land. Now that land is kind of disappearing because over the last five, 10 years, a lot of people have come into the Willamette Valley and bought up a lot of that land or developed vineyards. Um, at the same time, one of the things we do have that California doesn't is water. And that is like gold here. And, you know, but we're starting to see it. You know, climate change is real. Uh, we couldn't make really good Chardonnay here. Again, like I said before, about 2008. And now we make some of the best Chardonnay in the world mm -hmm. that a lot of people would compare to uh, a Burgundian type of a varietal. Um, that wasn't an opportunity here just a short time ago. So what does the future hold? Well, if it's, if it's gonna be anything like what it was to where it is now, who knows what the future is going to hold, but the opportunity is there because the quality is there. You mentioned earlier the, the, the pandemic that we're still still dealing with the effects of. Uh, I'm curious if it's had an effect on you and in, in the various things you're doing. Has it slowed you down? Has it changed your mind about anything? So it really hasn't. I think um, one thing we have to look at from a farming community is we're looking, especially for vintage sparkling wine, we're looking minimum four years out. So from a farming aspect, you know, we couldn't let it phase us because we still, whatever we're harvesting this harvest in 2020, you know, you're not gonna consume that product until a minimum of 2024. Mm -hmm. So the farming aspect really kind of stayed the same. Now what really hurt us from a COVID standpoint is a lot of the businesses in Oregon and a lot of the Oregon wines are sold in restaurants and grocery stores, but primarily restaurants is where a lot of these folks make their living and also tasting rooms. And I think that has really hit us hard. So the restaurant community, the tasting room community, that's really hit us hard. And we know it's coming back. You know, we want to come back faster, you know, probably than we should, but we want to be safe. Um, I think this year, the interesting thing is we had the opportunity where uh, the Southern Hemisphere has already had a harvest with COVID. We've learned from them, and we do conference calls here in Eola Amity and Willamette Valley all the time to better educate ourselves and our farming teams on how we're going to do harvest this year mm -hmm. as it relates to social distancing and cleanliness and all of those things. And that's a different aspect that we've never had to deal with. And it's time consuming and it's expensive and it's going to be harder, but we're prepared for it. Mm -hmm. So if it's done anything, and I think if COVID has really done anything, it's brought us all closer together. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, have we all had to hit the pause button on the wine industry, the restaurant industry for the last 
five, six months? Yes. Is it going to take another five, six months to a year to get out of it? Yes. But are we going to overcome it? Absolutely. And from a farming perspective, you know, we have to keep moving forward uh, because, you know, it's not going to stay like this forever and we need to be prepared for, for that outcome. You had talked earlier about uh, one of the biggest changes you've seen is the ability to make Chardonnay at the, at the level where you're, you're making it now versus before. What other changes have you seen in Oregon wine? What are the biggest changes between your kind of early awareness of it versus re-entering the industry versus now? On Chardonnay specifically? Uh, Oregon wine industry in general. Yeah, so uh, I'll be the first to admit that, you know, I've been a Bubbles fan most of my adult life. So. I didn't really feel quality was really coming out of Oregon, you know, as I was kind of growing up in the industry. Um, you know, I was a big, I, I love French champagne. I like the big houses and I like the grower champagnes. Uh, and I like some of the sparkling wine that comes out of California. So, you know, Oregon really didn't have anything for me in that category per se. Additionally, um, we weren't making Chardonnay up here, and I love Chardonnay. So Chardonnay was really either coming from Burgundy or from California. Uh, and then the other aspect really was, you know, Cabernet, you know, and Walla Walla and some of the places in Washington are making some of the most amazing Bordeaux varietals. We don't make those here. And I think I was a, I, I loved Cab. So kind of probably until about 10, 15 years ago, um, I really wasn't interested necessarily in the varietals that were here. I liked Pinot Noir. It wasn't my favorite. I really wasn't a Pinot Gris fan. I, you know, it was a little too sweet for me. So Oregon really didn't have a lot of offerings for me. And ironically now, and it's probably just, you know, because of what's happened with the climate, what's happened with the opportunity here in Oregon, you know, now these are some of the most beautiful Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays in the world, which really creates that opportunity, um, you know, for uh, an entire, a person like me, going back 20 years, would probably be excited about Oregon wines at that age where it wasn't there. So Oregon wines have really evolved. I think it's really exciting, you know, um, some of our founding uh, growers that are here, you know, it really didn't, you know, mid-70s, right? Mid to late 70s, even early 80s. I mean, those were like, you know, lean times. There weren't a lot of people taking the risk here. Uh, very inconsistent vintages. Uh, you know, you have a wet summer, you know, it ruins your entire vintage. Um, but what's happened over time, which is really exciting, is just the, this consistency and this climate and it's the heating up a little bit has really created the opportunity for us to to make some really high quality product. And probably somebody who's um, younger and maybe at my age, 15, 20 years ago, you know, you want to taste these wines today. Whereas back then, maybe it wasn't that. So you have uh, the project here at the Joy. You have Windfall, you have Lattle Barnett, you have your, uh, is it Oba? Obain. Obain, thank you, sorry. Uh, tell me about the future for these projects and, and kind of what you're hoping for, what you're projecting out as you look ahead. Yeah, so I think that um, I'm really excited. You know, clearly, sparkling is my passion, and we're going to continue on with that. You know, the idea is we're not, probably not going to make more than about 5,000 cases of Lytle Barnett. So the idea is it's going to be kind of a high-end, uh, smaller boutique project. Um, Obain is really um, going to be, we want it to be a single vineyard type of an approach. So whether it be from the Anahata or whether it be from uh, Windfall or whether it be from an, another property, um, it'll be a single vineyard Chardonnay Pinot Noir type of an approach. So again, it's going to stay boutique. Um, had the opportunity a few years ago, um, there was a wonderful sparkling wine in the valley called uh, Domaine Merryweather. And it was just a little bit ahead of its time. 
and uh, even in the 90s and in the early 2000s, I mean, it was served at the White House. Mm -hmm. uh, wonderful project. Jack Baghdad uh, happened, was an owner in that, and he was a friend of mine. And uh, Andrew Davis and I connected with him, and uh, we had the opportunity to buy uh, the intellectual property of Domain Merriweather. And we're very excited about that from a long-term perspective because we believe, even though uh, Lytle Barnett might be $80 at retail and $120 in a restaurant, we believe there's also an opportunity for a high-end sparkling wine to be probably in the $40, $45 range that could probably be sold more so into grocery stores and mass dis uh, distributed. Um, so we're really excited about putting a project out there like Domain Merriweather and creating a great opportunity for people to be introduced at a high level to Oregon sparkling wine across the country. Mm. So that's coming. And in terms of the properties, do you have a kind of an ETA on when you're going to be kind of up and running uh, across the street here and, and at this site? Yeah, so what's interesting right now, we make our wine for Lytle Barnett at Winter's Hill in Dundee, and we make our uh, Obain wines at Carlton Winemaker Studio. And for now, those satisfy our needs probably for those facilities. When Domain Merriweather kicks in, we're going to need our own facilities. And so there are plans for wineries here on Anahata as well as Windfall. Right now, the project is, is mostly focused against uh, getting uh, windfall planted, so it kind of comes in phases. So you know, building a reservoir, you know, planting the product or, or the the vines here in the next year, and then that'll take a few years to kind of develop. Um, and you know, building wineries and, and tasting rooms, you know, is not uh, inexpensive. So really, the opportunity is having the revenues that are coming in from Lytle Barnett or from Obain to be able to help fund the creation of some of those wineries. And uh, once we get to that stage and have the ability to make uh, Domain Merriweather on a consistent basis, we'll bring everything back in-house. And I think that's really going to be the exciting opportunity. So. Um, you know, it, the next five to 10 years are gonna be very exciting and very busy uh, for us. And so uh, we're really excited about it though because it's kind of like a, a bit of a legacy piece. I love having my children here, um, you know, because long after I'm gone, they're gonna be here and I don't care if they work in the business, but this is still gonna be a big piece of what we've done. Mm -hmm. uh, I had an interesting, uh, just to share a thought. Um, when I left Jackson family in February of 2019, in December, uh, I had a business trip down to San Francisco and I was working with one of our sales reps down there and um, she had told me the story of the Paradise Fires and that her grandparents were in the Paradise Fires and said that the, the story ha was that the grandparents were in the car and they were leaving and the fire engines and the police cars were coming the other directions and on the horns were yelling, get out of your car and run is what they said, so in a desperate mode, so they did. And they circled themselves up, and the, and the police and fire engines and stuff circled them around a, a, a Kmart parking lot. And the grandfather asked um, a police officer, you know, what do we do? And the police officer said, hold on to your loved ones and pray. Hmm. So, you know, that's, you know, if that doesn't tug at your heartstrings, you know, that's a tough one. And, you know, so we're not here for very long. So what you do with your life is really important. Hmm. On the same trip home, uh, I got a phone call from a buddy of mine that I went to college with, and he um, informed me that he had been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, 7% chance of survival. Um, I thought, well, that's, that's impossible. We're 50. You know, we're not getting that sick you know, at that time. And it was just 
an eye-opener for me. Uh, thank God he is, he's currently in remission and is cancer-free. Uh, and then I landed from that flight. This all happened on one flight to San Francisco. And Penny Marshall had just passed mm -hmm. away. And Penny Marshall, Laverne, you know, from Laverne and Shirley. Well, she survived uh, stomach cancer. She survived brain cancer. And at 75 years old, she um, ended up dying of complications from type 1 diabetes. Well, that hit me because I'm a type 1 diabetic. So immediately I started thinking to myself, I've got a lot to do. And if, if I'm only going to be on this planet for 25 more years, I, what am I doing? I've got to focus against my priorities. And so I called Barbara uh, over those holidays and said, hey, it's time for me to go. And she totally understood. We, we still have a great relationship. But, um, you know, it sounds like I'm very busy and doing a lot of things. And there's something behind me pushing me because I'm not here for very long. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of stuff that I still want to get done. And so um, that's kind of probably the engine that pushes me forward. And it's really for my kids and creating an opportunity uh, and, and really celebrate what's going on here in the Oregon wine industry. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Uh, all the questions that I have for you, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we, we didn't cover today that we should have covered? I, I don't know, that was pretty, pretty in-depth. <laughs> you know, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, look at this place. It was a very interesting comment. I was uh, here with my daughter, who's my intern, and Alex, who's our vineyard manager, last week, and we were down in uh, Block 9 over here for Chardonnay, and uh, the guest came down and said, um, what do you plant here on the property? And I said, oh, it's Chardonnay and Pinot Noir primarily. And she goes, she goes can you ask, answer me a question? And I said, sure. She goes, why would anybody spend the money to go to France when you can come here and have this view? And I looked at her and said, I don't know. And, and that's kind of, you know, you guys are sitting there and you have that view right now. And I mean, to me, that's the most majestical view in the Willamette Valley. And we get to wake up to that um, and share that with people because this home is a hospitality home. So I think um, when you sit here and maybe you're from somewhere else or Chicago or Seattle or New York or Florida or Texas, and you come here and you see what we're doing here and you get to experience a view like that, it's, it, it can change your life, you know, and it has for me. You know, it's very exciting. So there you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for hosting us here today, for, for letting us have the view, sharing your story and your thoughts with us, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews. <laughs>